Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and we have been trying to use an affirmation from the very end of Luke's gospel, and we're getting pretty close to the actual affirmation itself in our reading, not yet quite today, maybe a couple weeks out yet, but uh, we're going to put it on the screen here and let's say it together. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And that's found in Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Well, how many of you are familiar with the following hand movement from pro wrestling? All right. Well... Those of you that don't know that, that is John's, John Cena's famous you-can't-see-me gesture. Uh, and he does that when he knows he's basically won the match. He looks in his opponent's dazed eyes and he does that. And then he drops a five-knuckle shuffle on them and they're done. And uh, at that point, the opponent is so dazed and confused that Cena's reminding them he's so fast, they're not even going to see what's coming as they get defeated. And you say, Pastor Danny, how in the world is that relevant to today's message? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. But uh, on Good Friday, Jesus had died for our uh, sins on the cross and been buried. His body had been buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And that was witnessed to by multiple eyewitnesses, ladies and men. On Sunday morning, his disciples found that same tomb empty and were told by angels that Jesus was alive. So last week we looked at the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, just as he himself had said on at least three different occasions, but until the disciples actually saw Jesus alive after his resurrection from the dead, they just simply didn't believe it was possible. When, even when they did see him, they struggled to believe that it was true, and they wondered if it was too good to be true. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead was actually too true to be anything but good. Good news for all who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in any generation. Now, the reason I mentioned John Cena and his you-can't-see-me move a minute ago is because of how different Jesus is than the rest of us. I mean, I think about myself uh, for a moment here. If the religious leaders and Pilate had crucified me, the first thing I would have done when I rose from the dead is go right back to Pilate. I'm alive. Then I'd have gone to the high priest. I'd have gone to Annas and Caiaphas and said, look who's here. You thought you were done with your Jesus problem, but here I am. I'm alive. And then I would have gone to their equivalent of the uh, Jerusalem Gazette or Channel 13 or whatever. And I said, you need to document this. They killed me, but I'm alive. And I want every generation to have no doubt. I want it to be in the records of Rome. I want it to be in the records of the Sanhedrin. I want it to be in the record of the public 
that everyone would know that I died for sins and I'm alive and those who believe in me will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what I would have done. That's probably what you would have done. But that's not what Jesus did at all. And it's astonishing that he didn't do it. But he knows what he's doing more than we do. Uh, we oftentimes criticize the, the concept of believers attending church together, fellowshipping with other believers, and yet it was Jesus' idea himself to put believers in churches to fellowship with one another, to encourage each other. He knew that we're stubborn and slow of heart to understand and that sometimes we'd get on each other's nerves, but it was his idea as part of our discipleship and dying to self to get together with other people. And he does the same thing in our marriages. It's hard, you know, you have to die to self. You have to live for God's greater purposes in your marriage and stuff. And so two sinners are butting heads and you have to yield to the Lord and his plans for your life and marriage. And you learn to love each other over the years as that happens. Same thing happens in churches. And so that was his idea. But Jesus's idea, uh, the way he approached his rising from the dead was to show himself only to those who had already previously indicated they wanted to believe in him. He didn't show himself to non-believers at all which is very interesting, five times on that Sunday. And many times over the next 40 days, Jesus only appeared alive to those who had followed him. And he trusted that their transformed lives would make others want to find Jesus in the scriptures, which is so interesting. The impact on them was so great that those first disciples, almost all of whom came from a Jewish background, started meeting together on Sunday instead of Saturday. Saturday is when they would have their synagogue services, but they started meeting on Sunday because they wanted to commemorate Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That'll be a good time for us to gather after work or before work. They actually, on uh, that, that was a work day in Rome, and so they were founding a way on the first day of the week to get together. Uh, and worship. Resurrection Sunday had changed everything, and ever since, Christians have gathered to worship the risen Lord. We get especially excited about it at Easter, you know, because so many denominations have church calendars that lead you toward huge times at Christmas and Easter. But the Lord's simple plan was for every believer every Sunday to say, He is risen! He is risen indeed! And to celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so it's been for the last 2,000 years. And a few hundred believers in Jerusalem in AD 30 started it all as they worshiped the risen Lord. And that's grown to a few billion disciples in every single country of the world today. We still have people groups to reach, but there's not a nation, even the most persecuting nations on earth, that don't have at least a few hundred disciples that want to love and reach their neighbors and, and uh, around them. Obviously, Jesus knew what he was doing. So Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 13 to verse 32, I believe is where I'm going to stop for today. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day, that Sunday when Jesus had risen from the dead, to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know how and to what extent their eyes were restrained? Was it because his body had been so marred and scarred? You know, Isaiah 52 said he was marred beyond recognition. Was it because he was so marred and scarred that they didn't recognize him? Was it something he did supernaturally? I myself tend to go with the mask theory. 
uh, that has been famous now because we look, there's a guy wearing a mask and you can hardly tell who it is behind there. And I've mistaken more people in the last few weeks by wearing a mask and then wearing a mask. Just kidding, of course. Okay. But their eyes were strained so that they did not know him. Verse 17. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleophas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel." Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Jesus they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus didn't have any doubt that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He says, Moses and the prophets, Moses and the prophets together is a way to refer to the entire Old Testament. So Jesus shared the Old Testament scriptures with them and all the prophecies about himself. Verse 28, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him. It's a very forceful word that's used there. I mean, they did not let him do anything but go to where they were staying to eat, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. They knew Jesus, and Jesus vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus is alive and spends time with his friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of looking into the Word of God together. Thank you so much, Jesus, for this passage that tells us again that you were alive and that you appeared to your disciples before ascending to heaven. And Lord, from everything we read here in the next passage after this and the passages in John and Matthew and Mark, you truly enjoyed those 40 days. The work was done. You had finished the work of dying for our sins on the cross. You had defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell. And you spent these 40 days pouring into your disciples, joyfully doing so. And Lord, in addition to just this being the facts that we're reading here, it also looks like a model for us to rejoice as we spend time with one another sharing what you're teaching us in the Word of God what we've learned, and Lord, how we can connect the dots between the prophecies of the Old Testament and you fulfilling those prophecies, and also rejoicing in the promises of your return and the prophecies of your return, setting up an earthly kingdom. Lord, the ones related to your first coming have been completed, but we look forward in faith to all you're going to do in the days ahead. You promised, and we know that you always keep your promises. 
And so, God, as we spend this time in your word, help us to see what you would have us to see today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the work of salvation, it had been accomplished on the Friday, right? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that's just one word to tell us, die in the Greek. Paid in full. All that it would take for a sinner to go to uh, heaven instead of hell was accomplished by him. We did the crime. He did the time. He paid the penalty for us. He paid the bill that was due us. Now, how does that relate to what happened on Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it's a package unit. They go together. Kind of like a gymnast, you know, does the perfect routine. But if they don't stick the landing, uh, it's going to be a five, not a ten, right? No matter how many great things they do as they go through the air, they've got to stick that landing. The resurrection was Jesus sticking the landing. Romans 4.25 says it this way. He was delivered up because of our offenses. He was raised because of our justification. And so uh, you think about it. The combination of his death on Good Friday and his rising from the dead give us God's mercy and God's grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? The penalty. In Old Testament days when a sacrifice was offered like Jesus has been offered, they would not get what they do deserve. Their sins were forgiven. But grace goes beyond that. When we receive God's grace, we are getting what we don't deserve. And what is that? That is Christ's imputed righteousness counting for us on Judgment Day. That's why a great acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of what Christ has done for us when we appear before God in judgment, uh, we'll be passed over the same way the Passover lamb secured that for Israel as they exited Egypt, right? The Passover. Uh, Because of what Christ has done for us on Judgment Day, God will see us, but Christ's imputed righteousness will count for us. We've been credentialed for heaven. So there's nothing particularly hard to understand in this passage that we just read. And as we go through it, I'm going to make three observations from the text. Here's the first one. Jesus builds his church one believer at a time, one or two believers at a time, but always with an individual and what uh, and others. It can be two, it can be 20, it can be 200, it can be 2,000 or 3,000, but each individual heart is turning to Christ based on what they are hearing about him. So having risen, Jesus sets about building his church one person at a time, one testimony at a time. In Matthew 16, he promised that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against those who build their lives on him. He said that to Peter, one of the first ones he appeared to, and he now appears to these two disciples here. In verse 13, we read of two disciples who had been with the eleven when the ladies reported that the tomb was empty, and they are traveling on the road to Emmaus. Now, Uh, In verse 18, we learned that one of their names was Cleopas, Cleopas. And there's a man in John 19.25 who's named Clopas, Cleopas and Clopas. It may be the same guy, we're not sure about it, but it might be. And one thing that's intriguing about that is that John 19.25 tells us that one of the people at the uh, tomb when they were burying Jesus was Mary, the wife of Clopas. So some have suggested that the two disciples going on the road to Emmaus, and this goes along with Valentine's Day, that it was Cleophas and his wife Mary, and they were together going on the road to Emmaus. Now, we don't know that for sure. We know one of them was Cleophas, and there was a second one with him. We do know they had some reason to be walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
And the text uh, tells us that that was 60 stadia away. And the New King James here has supplied that that was seven or eight miles, seven miles or so. As they were walking, a stranger appeared on the road to walk with them. And they didn't know it, but it was Jesus. And it starts getting really good at this point. Jesus, unbeknownst to them, is walking with them. I remember at Jesus' great commission, he says, the very, you know what the last line is? We, we remember the words that he said that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. We remember that he said, you go therefore and make disciples. I'm giving you the power of attorney, so to speak, to make disciples while I'm gone, to represent me well. But the very last thing he said was that, uh, I, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's physically present with them, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's spiritually present with you as you go through life. You're never alone. You're not alone. And he also puts us with other believers, so we're not alone together, you know. Um, Now, of course, we also, as believers, we're told that the moment you believe the Holy Spirit baptizes you, he takes up residence in your heart. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's your guarantee of your future inheritance. So the Spirit of Christ is on the inside of us, and God is with us as we go through things. They didn't know it, but Jesus was walking with them. And like Mary Magdalene at the tomb, for some supernatural reason, originally they could not recognize him until he allowed it, until he made clear to them who he was. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? It's an extremely uh, poignant word for sad, sullen, downcast. And the word for conversation you're having with one another is, what is this that you are throwing to each other? You know, in a conversation, you throw a concept back and forth. We talk about batting things around, kicking things around. They're walking, and they're still trying to make sense of the events of the last 72 hours. And so they're, they're putting it all out there, and, and, and they're just, I can't believe he's dead, they're saying. I, you know, or is he alive? Is he dead or alive? Uh, what does this mean? Are we going to get to see him again? All these different things. And Jesus says, what is this kind of conversation you're having with one another? Now, of course, Jesus knows what has happened as well as anybody. He'd been the principal one experiencing those things. But he's drawing them out. And asking questions of somebody you're talking to is a good way to draw them out. Hearing their story, telling them your story, uh, telling them a story that will connect to a point you want to make to them like Nathan did when he confronted David over his sin. But Jesus is drawing them out. And so uh, he's talking to them this way. And the fact that he's doing this one person, two people at a time, instead of shouting it from the rooftop of the temple is just amazing to me and, and, and is so striking. He builds his church then and now, one believer at a time, and then some of them, like Peter, get the opportunity to preach to thousands at one time. Jesus himself could have gone right in and preached to tens of thousands of people still in Jerusalem. Instead, he appears to Peter, who then is so convinced the Lord has risen and forgiven his sins and his Lord and Savior that at the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches and 3,000 are saved and baptized. Now let me say something unusual here. In John 15, 15, Jesus had said to them, he said, I I don't want to just call you servants, I, I call you friends. I'm inviting you to think of me as your friend, right? And I think I said it a few months ago, it would be awesome if just somebody put on my tombstone one day, Danny Campbell was a friend of God like Abraham and a friend of sinners like Jesus. 
Friend of God, friend of sinners. Let's make that our life's ambition, our church's ambition, to be friends of God, friends of sinners, to develop that personal relationship we have uh, with Jesus as a friend. And here's the unusual thing, and I hope it's not too mystical for you, but friends mourn when their friends are mourning, and they rejoice when their friends are rejoicing, right? They'll drop anything to come and help you when you need help. Uh, and they just love you. They'll drive hundreds of miles to come see you and help you. As a friend of Jesus, I'm so happy that Jesus had these 40 days with his disciples. He'd spent three years with them traveling, loving them, being loved by them. Uh, but the last hours, my goodness, the, the, the garden where he sweat and prayed and, 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 and he's just sweating to blood coming out, you know, uh, was so intense. It was anguishing as he did that. And then, of course, we have talked about how excruciating the pain of the cross was and bearing our sins on the cross. And uh, all that is past now. When you get to Resurrection Sunday, Jesus will never have to experience anything like that. And again, for the rest of eternity. And so... If, if I'm him, I just say, I'm just going to send right to heaven, you know, and I've told you to meet me in Galilee, so go ahead and do that, and I'll, I'll see you there. Um, but, but he's just taking this time because they're so confused, they're so frozen up, he goes ahead and finds them where they are, even on the obscure road to Emmaus. They should have been on the road to Galilee. The other disciples shouldn't have been held up in a room. They should have been on the road to Galilee. He said, I'd meet you there after I'm resurrected, but they're frozen up, and Jesus says, you know, and... and and what's cool about it is uh, the sense of humor, right? I, I mean, um, <laughs> what things? And, and I can just see him almost cracking up as he says that because he knows exactly the things that have happened, and yet he lays them uh, out for them. He enjoyed every minute, I believe, of these 40 days, spending time with the disciples, eating meals with them, walking on roads with them, teaching and pouring himself into them. And so that was the first observation. Secondly... Jesus first used the scriptures to make his case, not the scars. My goodness, he's got the scars in the hands and the feet, right? He could show those, it's me, I'm alive. And yet he wants them to be scripture dependent, not experience dependent, right? Uh, and after Cleophas uh, recounts in verses 19 to 24 the events of the last few days, Jesus begins instructing them. And I don't know about you, but I, I would have I I led with the scars. <laughs> it's me. you got to believe, right? But I love that Jesus didn't because instead of showing them the scars, what does he show them? He shows them the Scriptures. I can't show people a visible Jesus in the year 2021, but I can show them the scriptures and what Jesus has done, and they can believe for the same reasons I have, and the same reason Jesus wanted his disciples to believe them, the, uh, the, the record of, that's in the scriptures, the prophetic words before, and then his fulfillment of them. Look at verse 25. After Cleophas shares, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He calls them foolish, not uh, fools like the Raka word. This is the simple, slow of heart. You're slow of heart to understand. And these words could describe sinners in any generation, couldn't they? The scriptures that we need to understand are simple enough to give us Jesus and eternal life, but we also are too often slow-hearted appliers of the scriptures. 
Uh, we read them, we forget them, we read them, we don't apply them, uh, you, you know, and a lot of times they're just not even read, you know, but if we do read them, we don't understand, take the time to meditate and then understand them and then apply them and commit them to memory when we've got verses we need to remember. So they've already admitted to this stranger in verse 21 that they were concentrating on the Old Testament passages that spoke of the Messiah being a conquering king. We were hoping that he, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And we've talked about this before, their expectation of a political deliverer, their expectation of Jesus throwing off hundreds of years of Roman occupation that had uh, been handed over from the Greek occupiers before that, and the Persian occupiers before that, and the Babylonian occupiers before that, and for the Galilee region, the Assyrian occupiers before that. All the way back to 7, 8, 900 uh, BC, they had been occupied by somebody else, and they were hoping Jesus would restore Jerusalem to political significance around the world, that he'd rule from there, that they'd put down their enemies, that it would be like the days of King David and King Solomon, but even more so, the glorious days that the Old Testament prophets spoke about God on earth. Uh, but the Old Testament had also spoken, not just of the conquering king, and, and that will happen one day. All those prophecies will be fulfilled when Christ returns and sets up an earthly kingdom. But before that, he had to be a suffering servant who would die for their sins. Look at verse 26 and 27. He says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? What things? The kind of things he had done on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday there. And to enter his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He not only pointed to them, them to a scripture, he told them the meaning of that scripture. What tremendous words. But it's also a challenge to us that are in here today and watching online. If you had to point people to Jesus' death for sinners using only Old Testament passages, how many could you remember? Make it your goal to know at least five. I know that it's often a topic in our Sunday school classes and in our small groups and meetings that the men's ministry and women's ministries have. I think that if you go through the course of a year at the tabernacle, if you're a youth reading through that Word of Life material, I know it's happening for you. If you're an Awana student going through the Awana material, I know it's happening for you. I think our adult teachers are also many times getting back to these themes. Um, but uh, make it your goal. 2021, 2022, to learn at least five of the Old Testament scriptures. And here's some of them Jesus may have gone over. I think he went all the way back to the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3. And he said, don't you remember what God told Satan after his, he led Adam and Eve to sin? Don't you remember he said that you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head? The son of the woman, the seed of the woman will do that. The very first prophecy of what Christ would do. I believe he may have gone to Genesis 22 where Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac and God, he told his son the promise that God will provide a lamb. And uh, what Abraham was willing to do, God did when he gave the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus himself. I believe he may have gone to Genesis 49 where it's prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah and one day ride in on a donkey and bear bloody clothes. Uh, what a tremendous prophecy that's given to Judah. In fact, you know, many people 
you know, there are so many wonderful applications in Scripture for practical living that many times that's what we're looking for. But we need to remember in every section of Scripture, there's not only practical applications, but theological points being made to advance the narrative of what Christ was going to do for us. Genesis 37 to 50, chapters 37 to 50, are often thought of as the great character study of the life of Joseph. And that's true. But the greater thing happening there is answering the question why the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. Judah was a rascal involved in uh, sins that I'm not even going to speak of this morning. But he had one redeeming uh, virtue, and that was when Benjamin was going to be kept in Egypt and possibly die, Judah said, take me instead. Let me come in place of my brother, because if Benjamin is left here, that's going to kill my dad, and I don't want that to happen. So take me instead, even if that means death. And it's as if Jesus was looking down from heaven and said, Father, when I go to earth, that's the tribe I want to be from. Because what Judah was willing to do for Benjamin, that's what I'm going to do for sinners. I'm going to take their place of judgment. And that's the prophecy of Genesis 49. And the Messiah will indeed be from the line of Judah, and he was, Jesus Christ. Well, Exodus 12 talks about the Passover lamb and how they had to slaughter the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that place in judgment. And as believers, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, the blood is covering over your sin. You'll be passed over on judgment day like we've talked about already. He may have gone to Leviticus 17.11 that talks about how the life of the flesh is in the blood, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so he reminded them that when they brought those sacrifices, that sacrifice was going to die. And that's how costly sin is. To substitute for it, you have to die. One for one, unless it's God making the sacrifice. If God makes the sacrifice, it can be one for all, all who receive Him as Savior. Deuteronomy 18.15, maybe you went there. He talked about the prophet that would come that was better than Moses, the one the people would have to obey. Uh, Passages like 2 Samuel 7, that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Psalm 2, God's Messiah must be kissed, He must be worshipped. Psalm 16, the Holy One will not undergo decay. His body won't be left in uh, the place of the dead. Uh, He'll not undergo corruption. Psalm 22, 16, the Messiah's feet and hands would be pierced. Psalm 110, this Messiah would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. One of the questions people have is if Christ is a priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi, then how can he be a priest as well as the king from the tribe of Judah? The answer is there's a more ancient priesthood described in the scriptures back in Genesis, the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 said, when the Messiah comes, that's the order of priesthood. He'll be from the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah 7, 14, the Messiah would be born of a virgin and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, the Messiah would minister in the Galilee region, even to Gentiles, and that his name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that the Messiah would be the Mighty God. Micah 5.2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Three different passages in Isaiah, chapter 11, chapter 42, chapter 61, talked about how the Messiah will minister and preach to the very least of these on earth, the ones everyone else overlooks, the poor, the blind, the prisoners, even Gentiles, he'll reach out to them. And 
If you know no other Old Testament passage, you ought to know Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 where there's at least 20 references to his substitutionary death. Let's put these ones up for you to look at. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. This talks about his death and his resurrection. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He'll be dead as a sacrifice, but he will prolong his days. He will see the fruits of what he's done. And I wonder if Jesus did go over that passage with them. He was looking at Mr. and Mrs. Cleophas there, Cleophas and his friend, whoever it was, and thought, you're the fruit of what I've done. This is why I'm taking this time right here to connect you with God forever. Daniel 9, 26, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Zechariah 3, God's branch will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Malachi, Zechariah 12, 10, they'll look on him whom they pierced and mourned. And even the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 2, to those who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Oh my goodness, wouldn't you love to have had Jesus on a seven-mile walk with you? just explaining Old Testament Scripture after Old Testament Scripture, about to reveal to them that he is the very fulfillment of those things, even as he was talking to them about. We know from verse 42 that Cleophas and his traveling companion, their hearts were doing what while Jesus was talking? Their hearts were burning within them. And I became a Christian December 16, 1984, as a senior in high school. And every time the scriptures get open today, my heart still burns as I hear what the preacher's saying, connecting it with the word, knowing it's about Jesus. And, uh, you know, people talk about boring preachers and sermons. I just don't know what to tell you. With the Holy Spirit inside, there's never been a sermon I've heard that I wasn't able to take something away from and apply to my life and humbly think that's where I needed to place the emphasis rather than having roast preacher later. Foolish skeptics are looking for scars. They're looking for powerful experiences. But we give them what? We give them the scriptures. And it's the powerful message that Paul celebrates in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. God's power for salvation to everyone who believes Jew first and after that Gentiles too. Everybody that gets in on it by faith. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why is it foolishness to those who are perishing? They can't believe that God would love us enough to do that. That's the first problem. The second one is they don't understand they're a sinner that really has the need to be saved. And so even some liberal denominations talk about, look at the cross and follow Jesus' example of sacrifice. That's not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we are of all men most to be pitied. He went to that cross because we had the need for salvation. We would have gone to hell otherwise. He rose from the dead so that we could go to heaven instead of hell. And it's so powerful when you put it all together. I'm glad Jesus used the scriptures first because we can also. In fact, we have to. We don't have a visible Christ to show people. But the Bible tells us that when we talk to our friends and family members and acquaintances and coworkers and schoolmates about Jesus from the Scriptures, God will use those Scriptures to save some even as many others mock on. Billy Graham struggled. He had heard things that criticized the Scriptures back in his day. 
And he went to a camp, and a dear lady named Henrietta Mears told him some things to give him more confidence in the Scriptures. And he went down to the little lake that was there. He bowed down. He kneeled down. He was all the way on the ground on the beach there at the lake. And uh, he said, God, I don't understand it all, but you've more than earned the benefit of the doubt with me and what's in your beautiful word. He says, I will preach this book with confidence all my days. I will say, the Bible says, and I'll preach your word with confidence, knowing that it's true, and I'll let your Holy Spirit do the work. And boy, did God do the extra work when Billy Graham preached the word, right? All the ones that were saved because of him. And great evangelists before him like Mordecai Ham, who one time back in the 20s was in Danville, and several thousand people were saved during a two-week meeting. And may God do something like that in the future. We all now have to wait to see the scars, but we can believe based on the Scriptures. What's interesting is there was a passage in Luke that got us ready for this moment. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus back in Luke 16? Abraham told the rich man at the end, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, (laughs) they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. And so we put the word out before people. Well, the third observation is that Christian hospitality is often rewarded by God with spiritual insight. Look at verse 28. They drew near to the village where they were going, and Jesus indicated that he would have gone further. I'm going to go further on, guys. See, a nice talking to you. I'm going to go on. (laughs) But it was so late. I love how it says the day was far spent. There wasn't much more day left in that day. What an eventful day it had been. They would have been, we, we would forgive them, wouldn't we? For being so tired at the end of that long day with the report of Jesus rising back in Jerusalem, they've taken the walk there, we could forgive them for saying, you know what, we got to get to the house, and we don't have time for a stranger to come with us, an extra mouth to feed, and if he stays the night, that sort of thing. Uh, We wouldn't uh, think anything of them saying, well, gosh, it was great spending time with you, maybe exchanging business cards, you know, text numbers or something like that. You know, we wouldn't uh, slight them for that but they would have missed the biggest blessing of the life, and probably this story wouldn't even be in the Scriptures. Uh, Luke thought so much of it because of this part of it being in there too. He accepted their hospitality. Had they not opened their home to the stranger, they would have missed Jesus revealing himself to them. And I wonder, I know that we are coming out of a whole year where everyone told you not to get together with non-family members, not to get together in crowds and things like that. But it's not too long now before all that lifts up and we've made it through what we made it through. And the church better get back. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ in all corners of the world. Better get back to the practice of hospitality where we open up our hearts and our homes to each other, have meals together, uh, and and we extend that to some non-Christians we know too so we can share scriptures and truth with them. And if the church of Christ will do that all around the world, hey, listen, We're in America where we've had our own ways of applying these rules. Europe Europe has too. But in many places, it's hospitality that has won many people to Christ during this time of pandemic. And around the world, stories have come in of even pastors who have died because of their going into homes when others would not take food to those people that were sick and stuff like that. Um, I wonder how many blessings we miss because we don't practice hospitality. Look at Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. We're going to put it up for you here. Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Johnny Mitchell has a nice story or two about something like that, where all of a sudden it looked like he had the help of an angel. Uh, And uh, you uh, may have a story like that over your time as well. But um, isn't that an amazing thought, that if we reach out with God's love to others, 
We may run across some angels during our lifetime. But what a more powerful thought in this text. Cleophas and his friend or his wife, whoever she was or he was, um, they reached out with hospitality and they got to entertain Jesus there in their Emmaus abode. Whew. Reminds me of Matthew 25. Matthew 25 has that parable, uh, and it has uh, people wondering, hey, Lord, when did we um, visit you in prison? When did we uh, you know, uh, see you naked and give you something to wear, hungry and give you something to eat, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did that happen, Lord? And he said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Cleophas and whoever he's with there got to do it actually unto Jesus because they were applying the hospitality principle. They opened their homes and their hearts, and God rewarded them by opening their eyes, like we sang about a little while ago, to see Jesus. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, It came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. What does that make you think of? It makes you think of Uh, him taking the Lord's Supper with them that we did a couple weeks ago and when you break bread and take the Lord's Supper together. And this is probably not an, uh, an exact reference to the Lord's Supper here. It just reminds us of that and that's one of the ways that God builds the fellowship is that time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate what Christ has done and we also think about our earthly relationships. But uh, here it probably is more about just taking the time to slow down talk with others, often at a meal, and when we do, God moments can happen. God moments can happen. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. Only after he explained the scriptures, their eyes were opened and they knew him. Perhaps he showed them the scars, but whatever his body looked like, they were able to recognize him and they knew, it's Jesus. He is alive. Next week, we'll look at how they ran to tell the disciples that, and the disciples were excited to tell them that Peter had seen the risen Lord also, and they compared notes, and that's very powerful. But here, we look at this great truth, and we see that they got to see Jesus alive and be among the eyewitnesses, the testimonies that God would build his church on. And then it says, he vanished from their sight. Ah, he's there, and then he's not there, which shows that the resurrected body is a little bit different. Yeah, it can eat and it can walk, but it can also go from one place to another. And next time we'll see it can even go through closed and locked doors. And we think, ooh, is that the kind of resurrected body we're going to get one day? That we can go back and forth between on earth and the new Jerusalem and other things like that? Pretty powerful to think about. One day they're going to see him again, and so will we. We haven't got to see him physically the first time yet, but our hearts yearn within us, don't they? And so will all of us who, having not seen him, believe in him like Peter talked about, based on the preaching of the Scriptures. One more verse, and then we're done. 1 John chapter 3, the very last part of verse 2 and verse 3 says, We know that when Jesus is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you want to live a pure life for Jesus? Do you want to be wholly set apart for his purposes? It's hard in a sin-stained world. We make a lot of mistakes. we got lots of work to do when we confess our sins before him. Thank God he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sin. But if we want to be more pure for him, 
we're told we want to think more about Jesus and the fact that one day we're actually going to get to see Him and spend that time with Him. And when you take and download those beliefs from the Scriptures and make them part of who you are and your walk and your life, then you're increasingly growing in your relationship with Him as your friend. When you're ministering to others in His name and making Him visibly known through the body of Christ, doing loving deeds and sharing Christ with others, then more and more you'll have that expectation that Jesus could come today. And when He does, I'm going to be with Him forever, and I'm going to be perfect in Him at that point. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.